0: Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Super Tuesday is traditionally the most important of a presidential primary, with more than a third of all delegates up for grabs. But with Bernie Sanders surging, Democratic party elites are plotting to make another super even more important, super delegates. Democratic establishment figures are increasingly discussing in the open the prospect of choosing their own nominee at the Democratic convention, if Sanders does not arrive with a majority of delegates. Chris Cuomo of CNN called for a centrist ticket of what he called super friends. We've seen and that's why this time. idea the super friends might happen, where yeah. uh, if, you know, somebody comes together and yeah, I, I think it's hard to depict with Bernie. I have to be honest with you because he's uncompromising in his ideals. I do so too, the too. idea yeah. of having all these other people around him who yeah. don't agree with going for it, with Medicare for all and everything he wants to do with the tax structure, But the idea of, hey, look, you know all these people, and all of you like them to differing degrees, we're going to put them all together, and you'll know what you're getting in a way that you never have before. That concept is good. It's just who's Superman
1: or um, Superwoman.
0: The New York Times spoke to 93 superdelegates, 84 of them oppose making Sanders the nominee if he arrives at the convention with just a plurality and not a majority of delegates. The Times says these superdelegates are, quote, Willing to risk intraparty damage to stop Sanders' nomination if they get the chance. Well, to discuss whether they will get that chance, I spoke earlier to Crystal Ball. She is co-host of the TV show Rising, airing on The Hill, and co-author of the best-selling new book, The Populist Guide to 2020. Crystal Ball, welcome to Pushback. The prospect of superdelegates deciding the nominee and putting forward a ticket of so-called super friends is uh, increasingly being raised, and it's stoking alarm amongst Bernie Sanders supporters. How real of a possibility do you think it is?
1: Oh, it's like 100% real. If Bernie fails to win a majority of the delegates, at this point, there is zero doubt in my mind that they will try to take it from him, either through stacking up the super friends you know, on the first ballot, or through superdelegates. We saw that New York Times reporting where they interviewed all of these superdelegates and they were basically like, look, this is me paraphrasing, those were not their exact words, but they're basically like, yeah, we know it would damage the party to try to take it from Bernie on the second ballot. We don't really care. We do it anyway. And the reason is, you know, something that I've been talking about for a while because many of these people whose careers or their access to power or their personal status or whatever depends on the existing Democratic Party uh, power structure, they would rather have another term of Trump than have Bernie Sanders. Why? Because these are people that all know how to be in the opposition. That doesn't represent an existential threat to their status and their livelihood. Bernie Sanders does represent an existential threat to their status and their livelihood. So they know how to ride out another four years and then have another bite at the apple four years from now with another neoliberal. They don't know what it looks like for this entire order that they've associated themselves with and that they've used to build up their own career and status. If that ends, that really could be it for them in terms of their power positioning. So that's why so many of these people would look at the fact that many Bernie supporters, many Americans would be disgusted by a process that would rob him of the nomination, would not vote for the Democratic nominee, would almost guarantee Trump's reelection and say, you know what, that's the path we're going to go down anyway.
0: What strikes me here is the contempt for Democratic voters sort of on two fronts. So first of all, this idea that you're going to pick someone who does not have a plurality. But then also you have the added contempt of progressive voters, because if you look at this New York Times piece, every person who they put forward as the possible, as a possible candidate on this so, so-called super friends ticket decided by super delegates is a so-called moderate. There's no talk of having a progressive. Instead, you have name floated like Kamala Harris and Chris Coons.
1: Yeah, well, and they completely ignore the fact that um, Bernie Sanders is not only obviously winning. But he's consistently rated as, you know, highest favorability ratings among the Democratic base. His ideas have won the day. Um, you know, the reason why he's winning right now is very clear. It's because he's been running on Medicare for all and healthcare is the number one issue and voters trust him most on healthcare. So this idea that voters really would prefer a moderate candidate, it's just not yeah. borne out by any of the data that exists. And it's so hard to imagine Yeah, I mean, at this point, they're, the, the idea of Kamala Harris is insane. She couldn't even make it to Iowa, right? And we're going to say that she's the will of the people. But they're getting to a point where they're not even hiding their, you know, um, contempt for the voters, their contempt for democracy. I don't know if you saw on MSNBC, it's a guy who was an Obama supporter. He's been, you know, a longtime hater of Bernie Sanders who came out and said, no, the public doesn't decide who the nominee is, the party decides, and then people are allowed to vote for president based on who the party decides gets to be the nominee. Uh,
0: The Democratic Party has a party. The party decides its nominee. The public doesn't really decide the nominee. The public gets to vote for President of the United States, but people who are active in the party, who participate in the party, they decide the nominee. Superdelegates are very influential in the party. Also, delegates are very influential. And just because you're a pledged delegate for Bernie Sanders or a pledged delegate for Joe Biden doesn't mean when you get to the convention floor that you'll stay a delegate for Biden or Sanders. That's a process. And so it is a process.
1: Which means that this whole process we're engaged in, organizing and volunteering and sending in contributions and going to rallies and voting, is all in the minds of these party leaders, basically democracy theater, right? Sure, we'll let you feel like you have a say in the process, but if you pick someone that we find unacceptable, we're going to invalidate all of that. All of these contests, every door that was knocked, all the phone calls that were made—they're talking about invalidating all of that to pick someone that they find unacceptable. It's just completely flagrant. And to tie it back to something that you know you've been excellent on and, and covering—you know—extensively, and that we always draw on your expertise for for our show, Rising. This is the same group of Democratic. Elites who run around all day, every day, crying about threats to democracy and you know the sanctity of the vote and election interference and all of that. But when it comes down to it, when it's inconvenient for them, they're ready to ready, willing, and able to completely dispatch with any notions of democracy to serve their own ends.
0: At a recent debate, Bernie Sanders was the only candidate who raised his hand uh, when asked whether he supports the idea of. Nominating the candidate who has a a plurality of delegates if they don't have the majority, and Elizabeth Warren recently was asked about this at a CNN town hall, and I want to get your response to the argument she made, which is that her position now is the same one that Bernie Sanders had in twenty six in twenty sixteen. That was Bernie's position in twenty
1: sixteen that it should not go to the person who had a plurality. So, and
0: remember his last his last play was to superdelegates. So the way I see this is you write the rules before you know where everybody stands and then you stick with those rules. So for me, Bernie had a big hand in writing these rules. I didn't write them, uh, but Bernie did.
1: Her argument is completely disingenuous. First of all, this whole idea that these were the rules that Bernie wanted, no. The Sanders people fought to get rid of superdelegates entirely. Right. The only reason that we have this second ballot thing is because that's what the DNC hacks forced upon them. So he's been consistently against superdelegates. And in 2016, if we want to go back to that, which I don't know why anybody really does. But in 2016, what he was arguing for was that the superdelegates in the states that he won should stay with him, which is, again, like a a democratic principle. The person who has clearly changed her position is Elizabeth Warren, who's on the record multiple times, you know, decrying superdelegates, talking about how the person who gets the most votes should be the person that wins, seems like a pretty simple principle, talking about how the 2016 uh, primary vote was rigged. I mean, she said that outright. So she has clearly changed her position in a way that's very disingenuous. And just like putting the morality or the hypocrisy of that or whatever aside, I don't understand the political calculus. We're seeing polling that shows on Super Tuesday, she may well lose her own home state of Massachusetts. There's not a state in the country that she's set up to actually win. So how are you going to present yourself as the unity candidate when you can't even win your home state? It seems to me like the best case scenario for her would be to try to rebuild some of the bridges with Bernie and with the Sanders movement and hope to have some power and influence and potentially you know, administration position under a Sanders administration. You know, I think it's very unlikely at this point that any of that would happen because of the very cynical, uh, hypocritical, and disingenuous way that she has played all of this.
0: That's the problem with Warren. I would have thought previously that that would have been her path to try to make amends with Sanders and be a part of his movement. But based on her performance so far in the primary, uh, trying to repeatedly attack Sanders, the the whole controversy for a couple of days about him allegedly telling her that a woman can't win the presidency, it makes me actually wonder whether she's committed to the politics that I used to associate her with.
1: Well, that, honestly, it's... Sad for me, um, because she was a hero of mine, I mean, really and truly. And back before 2016, before Bernie got in the race, I mean, I was the first out there begging her to run. When I did uh, that piece on MSNBC that got a lot of pickups saying, please, Hillary, don't run, the person that I was like, we've got to have, we need someone who's got the like courage of their convictions and fights for working class people and stands up to the Obama administration when it's uncomfortable, that was Elizabeth Warren. And, I mean, I really thought that about her. And she did, right? She did go up against the Obama administration and challenge them on some of the, you know, banking-friendly interests that they were pulling into their administration, when that was a very uncomfortable thing to do. So it's been deeply distressing and upsetting to me to see the way that this whole primary has played out. But I have to be honest, I mean, it started really back in 2016 when... You know, she decided not to run for president in and of itself kind of disappointing when you have progressives coming to you and saying, we need an alternative, we need an alternative. She doesn't step up. But then even beyond that, she leaves Bernie Sanders out there in the wind, doesn't back him up, waits till you see where the where the chips are falling and endorses Hillary Clinton. To me, that was the first indication of the type of ally that she would ultimately be. And in fact, that's exactly how things have played out in this campaign with her, you know, rather than going after Joe Biden, who she came into politics really, you know, really in opposition to, he was on the other side of that bankruptcy bill that was so central to her um, sort of political formation. Rather than ever taking any shots at him, she goes out of her way to hit her fellow progressive. It, and Smirin is a secret sexist. And it's just very, very, I think, tremendously disappointing. And personally, I will never look at her or trust her as a part of the movement again.
0: You have a show, Rising, that attracts a a cross-section of viewers. It's not just speaking to uh, one slice of the electorate. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on Democrats' ability to uh, win back those, voters especially, who went from uh, Obama to Trump in 2016. And the line that we're hearing repeatedly from the Democratic establishment, we heard it both in 2016 and now in 2020, is that the working class uh, is, especially the white working class, that's now Republican. So here, for example, is Rahm Emanuel, uh, the former uh, Obama aide, former mayor of Chicago, speaking to CNN. This would basically take that entire strategy and throw it out the window, Mm -hmm. and say that what we're gonna see now is a turnout of young voters that have never been shown since the voting age has been reduced to 2018, and a return of working class non-college-educated voters to us that we haven't seen since 1964. That is a, with not only the presidency, Congress, Senate, governorships, state houses, that is a major risk. So that's Rahm Emanuel speaking to CNN. He's saying that this prospect of counting on working-class, non-college-educated voters returning to vote for the Democratic Party is a major risk. Crystal, it reminds me of Chuck Schumer confidently proclaiming in 2016 that for every working-class voter that we lose, uh, in Scranton we will pick up two or three uh, suburban uh, college educated voters in the suburbs of Philadelphia. For every blue collar Democrat, we will lose in Western PA, we will pick up two, three uh, moderate Republicans in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And you can repeat that in Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin.
1: Yeah, such a great point. And you know, I think there's been this debate too on the Democratic side, oh, do we seek to win back those voters or do we seek to energize the base? I don't think it's an either or thing. I think if you, you look at Bernie Sanders' coalition, his strongest performance is with the white working class and with young voters and with working class people of color. I also think that for suburban voters, Donald Trump himself is a great motivator and that's what we saw in the, the midterm elections. But look, let's let's have the humility about all the electability stuff. The truth is nobody knows what's going to happen, how it's all going to unfold. Is coronavirus going to shake? We, nobody knows, right? What I do know is this. I did not sign up to be a part of a party that has contempt for working class people of any color. And the reality is that for a long time now, the Democratic Party has been looking down their nose with contempt, especially at white working class voters, but I would say with, with all working class voters. And so as a matter of morality, as a matter of who I want the party centered around, the type of people whose interests I want it to represent, that to me is the battle and the struggle of realigning the Democratic Party to its historic base of being a champion for working class people. So look, maybe that doesn't, you know there's a possibility that doesn't work out this election cycle, that it takes time. Look, when you've looked down your nose and held someone in contempt for a long time, it takes time to rebuild that relationship. But my commitment is to focusing on rebuilding the party in that direction, realigning the party in that direction. And it happens to be that the data also reflects the fact that it is most likely that that is the best path in terms of electability, winning back places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan as well.
0: A problem I've faced is Trump won in 2016 on a campaign that uh, included outright racism uh, and xenophobia, and you can't ignore that. At the same time, I have met because because of my I've been so critical of Russia Gate, um, it's brought me into contact with a lot of Trump voters who repeatedly told me that they that they were uncomfortable with some of that rhetoric that he used, but also they just saw him as the anti-establishment candidate, and so. Really, in an act of desperation and as an act of rebellion against what they perceive to be the Washington establishment, Trump was their guy. And I think this is why Bernie Sanders has the ability to win over people that people like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden just can't win over anymore because they're deemed to be a part of the establishment that Bernie Sanders is just not a part of.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, um... Democrats on Twitter like hashtag resistance types vote blue no matter who types always love to say like Bernie's not even a Democrat. And to me, that's the point. That's part of why that's like the best thing he has going for him, because so much of America, normal Americans have complete contempt for the Democratic establishment, just like they have and had for the Republican establishment. The fact that he's not a Democrat is one of his great selling points and is exactly why he does so consistently well with independents because they see that he's willing to call BS on his own team and that's a deeply compelling thing. You know, on your point about the, the sexism and the racism that Trump ran on that he still, you know, brings to the table on a nearly daily basis, my personal view is number one, I'm not in the business of like looking into voters hearts and saying, these ones are worthy. These ones are unworthy. This one's worthy of being in our coalition. This one's not. I think we just have to think about what's right, right? What can we do to further the interests of the American people? And I also think that there's a very cynical game that goes on with the media and with um, both party establishments of blaming voters for things rather than doing any self-reflection, right? No one in the Democratic Party ever asked, how, what their failings were, where they went wrong, that so many voters could vote for this, like, ridiculous clown reality show lying dude, right? They never did that. Instead, it was Russia, or it was Comey, or it was sexism, or they're just all too racist. And we saw it in the Democratic primary, right? Kamala Harris saying, Voters didn't support her because of sexism and racism. So now it's not only Republican voters who are sexist and racist, it's also apparently Democratic primary voters who are sexist and racist. Eventually you end up writing up, off the whole country as deplorable. And where does that get you? There's no doubt that there is racism, that there is bigotry, that there is sexism. There's also no doubt if we look out throughout history that those ugly sentiments come to the fore and become more um more prominent and more dominant in our lives and in our politics when people are under um, stress. And that's not to excuse any of that, those ugly views and abhorrent behavior. But we also can't ignore that there's a societal dynamic here where when you have people who are being crushed every day and treated as less than human, being robbed of their dignity in ways large and small throughout their daily lives, that you're more likely to have these um, incidences of racism and sexism and other types of bigotry, where they need there, where there's a desire to blame someone else, come to the fore. We see that in our country. We see that in places around the world as well.
0: Final question: Who do you think drops out after Super Tuesday, and who do you think becomes the last hope for the moderates, so-called moderates, to stop Bernie Sanders?
1: I think Biden's probably the last hope. Um, you know. Bloomberg, uh, it's interesting with Steyer, who is really um, underperformed, and and, uh, I should say this, we're taping this before South Carolina, so I don't know exactly how Steyer will do in South Carolina, but it doesn't look like the just paying for votes thing ends up carrying the day. Um, I think Bloomberg's support is very weak. I think he has, you know, for those who were sort of pinning their hopes on him, his performances on the debate stages have <laughs> raised a lot of questions about whether this is really the guy to go up against Trump. And Biden's the only candidate who actually has any demonstrated ability ability to win um, diverse communities. So I think he is the last great hope. I don't know if uh, one thing I floated is maybe there's like a, a Joe Biden with Pete as vice president thing that's floated. I wouldn't surprise me as kind of a horror show, but you know, that's a possibility. Um, As far as who's gonna drop out, listen, I think if Elizabeth Warren loses Massachusetts, uh, that's pretty hard to persist after that. Amy Klobuchar, uh, Minnesota is also on the ballot. I think she will actually pull that off. She is more popular in Minnesota than Warren is in Massachusetts. But she's got to be running low on funds as well. It's hard to imagine how she continues past Super Tuesday. Um, That is my view. And the last thing that I'll say is that um, we can't forget that as poll numbers go up and media narratives and this one's got momentum, et cetera, et cetera, no campaign has the infrastructure and the enthusiasm, the volunteer base and the resources on the ground and the know-how that the Sanders campaign does. There's just no one that is like, remotely matching them in every single Super Tuesday state and across the country. So it's a tremendous advantage, um, organizing advantage and infrastructure advantage that they have going into this, even in states like you know Arkansas, which should be a tough state for Sanders, um, although there are some affinities there. But there's polling that shows he's got a chance to win a place like Arkansas. Why? Because they've built the infrastructure, they've done the work They've been organizing uh, and advertising even when other candidates haven't. So I think Bernie has a tremendous advantage that way coming into Super Tuesday.
0: Crystal Ball, co-host of the show Rising and co-author of the best-selling new book, The Populist Guide to 2020. Crystal, thank you so much.
1: Aaron, always great to talk to you.